hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hello, podcast listeners. It's Carly here. Registration is now open for our September 24th and 25th podcast virtual retreat, and we could not be more excited to welcome you back. Our last retreat was exceptional. We made some incredible memories. So please come join us again with industry experts like cultural critic, author, poet, and book development expert, Lee Stein. Authors like international bestseller, Jane Green. Self-publishing superstars like Kirsten Moglin, Reese Witherspoon-Pick, Andrea Bartz, and agents like myself. We will see you all September 24th and 25th. You can register now at theshitaboutwriting.com. That's theshitaboutwriting.com. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Today we've got two authors on the show with us so that we can discuss their work with them. First up is Noreen and then it's Lane. So Noreen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's wonderful to have you here. Will you kick us off by reading your query letter? Sure. All right. Dear Carly, Bianca and Cece, thank you so much for considering my work for the Books with Hooks segment of your podcast. 
I am an avid listener, and I truly appreciate everything that you do for emerging writers. I am submitting this query to Carly due to her interest in women's fiction, but would appreciate any feedback as I am revising my story in preparation for querying. My 88,000-word women's fiction novel, Living for the Summer, is a dual-timeline, second-chance romance set in Canadian cottage country like Carly Fortune's Every Summer After, mixed with the complex family dynamics and struggle of finding herself within two cultures, as told in Samia Dave's Well-Behaved Indian Woman. Leah Nanja has achieved almost everything her deceased father wanted for her. She has an accomplished fiancé from the same cultural background, and they're both within a hair's breadth of making partner at their law firm. But when a family illness takes Leah out of town for the summer to be the sole carer of a rebellious teen cousin, it throws an important case and her sought-after promotion into jeopardy. To make matters worse, when Leah arrives at her old family home, she finds her former flame, Wesley, still living next door. His present brings back memories that have no place in her life, and she can't seem to remember why she pushed him away so many years ago. The competition between Leah and her fiancé intensifies when they find that only one can be promoted, leading to their relationship splintering. The fallout leaves her at odds with her bereaved mother, and her decisions jeopardize her career. But when the summer comes to an end, Leah must decide what dreams belong in her past, and what, or who, is worth sacrificing for her future. I am a pediatric neurologist, and I am also a second-generation immigrant who had to balance my interests with parental expectations. When not writing, I can be found baking cookies, lifting heavy at the gym, or working through my never-ending to-be-read pile. Thank you very much for your consideration. Sincerely, Noreen Shatter. Wonderful, Noreen. Thank you for that. Ah, high stakes indeed, people. And I'm loving some of the tropes already coming through in that. Right. So, Carly, why don't you tell us what you thought of that? Absolutely. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. We're so thrilled to be back in action and having authors back with us. So thank you so, so much. So I just wanted to start kind of with the the comps and the world and everything like that. So obviously, you know, every summer after is a perfect comp. We're a huge fan of Carly Fortune on the podcast. So I think you nailed that one for sure. Out of personal interest, and I don't know if it needs to be a written comp, but a really another book that you may or may not have read is Marissa Stapley's Mating for Life. It also has a Canadian cottage country uh, thread in it. So if you haven't read that one, definitely go read that one. I think that was her first book, actually. So yeah, it doesn't need to be a comp. I think the Every Summer After, but just for a fun read, I think you'd like that one as well. So I think one of the biggest strengths of this query letter is the stakes. I just think you did a really good job with the whole like the competition between her and the fiance intensifies when they find out that only one can be promoted. That's really, really strong. And romance, sometimes one of the weakest things is the stakes, like what's keeping them together, what's keeping them apart, all that sort of stuff. So I think you really, really did a great job with that kind of setting it, setting yourself up for a lot of success here. So I don't actually have any criticism, I don't think. I mean, really, I usually, you know, suggest just to have one body paragraph. You did break it up into like one, two, three, four, five, like six or so paragraphs. It's not the end of the world. Like it does make it a bit easier on the eyes. So I, if, if you want to condense, you can, but I think you really, you hit everything that you need to hit. I also think that somebody who is looking for a query like this will be interested in everything you have to say. So overall, I don't think I have any actual criticism now that I'm looking at my notes. I think I only had a few some things to say. <laughs> Always amazing to hear that. Cece, did you have anything you wanted to add? I just want to say this is if I were in a bookstore and I read this at the back on the back of a book, I would pick the book up, take it to the checkout and buy it because it sounds like such a fun story. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. All right, Noreen. So now we're going to, well, before we go to your actual pages, I mean, did you have any questions for Carly or Cece? I know she didn't give you much feedback in terms of critique, but maybe you have some questions before we move on. Yeah, I kind of just have a question about like things that should be included in the query letter. I'm going to be revising the manuscript in a mentorship program. Is that something that would be helpful to mention or is it not really relevant? 
Um, that's a good question. I always err on the side of not mentioning these things. And the reason is, if you are serious about your career, we assume that you are doing these things. So mentioning them, sometimes it feels like people are trying to name drop. And if I don't recognize the name, then it's kind of like, why bother? You know what I mean? Like anybody that takes their career seriously, again, we assume you're workshopping, you know, doing the mentorship, everything like that, unless it's a client of mine, where it's like, oh, I did a mentorship with your client or PS literary client XYZ. I think that would be something that I think would be a strength. But otherwise, it's just kind of assumed. I don't know. Cece, what do you think? I I agree, especially if because I understood based on your question, you know, that you were going to say that in the future, like I'm going to be revising this. Is that what you meant? Or did you mean that? it had? Oh, no, like I meant when I'm done, like I'm going to be revising it as part of a mentorship program. So like when I'm going to be querying, I was just wondering if I should include that or just like keep my career you should include that you had revised it already. With yes. Yeah. Person. Like not like in the future. sense. Yeah, I, you know. I, I honestly, I, I know this is probably not very helpful, but it, it doesn't actually make a difference one way or another. The strength of the query letter will speak for itself. Again, unless it's someone that like I'm obsessed with, in which case, yeah, of course. Can I just ask, what happens if it's like a, a mentorship program that's really difficult to get into? Let's say, you know, there are other listeners out there where there's a lot of applications, the competition is fierce, then does that make a difference? Because then it potentially shows you know that the the work is of a really high caliber and is sought after or that still doesn't make a difference honestly I feel like it really doesn't make a difference unless it's something where it's like a grant or you know what I mean like you really had to like apply and go through like a lot of hoops obviously like our MFA program like that sort of thing can totally be mentioned but I think unless it's something where, yeah, it's like a long application process, grants, like very recognizable, like the Whiting Awards, or I don't know how you pronounce it, it's Whiting or Whiting Awards, like, you know what I mean? Like the granting systems, like those sorts of things. That's kind of what I think might be key. But otherwise, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't, it does not tip the scales one way or another. If you feel like there, you have nothing to put in your author bio, like people that are listening, if you're like, I have nothing else to put in my author bio, if you feel like that's the only thing you have to put in it, again, there's no harm in doing it. It's just, does that beef it up? Does that tip the scales? No. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. And Cece, thank you for that. All right, Noreen, will you give us a brief summary of what's in your opening pages? Uh, sure. So the opening pages start with Leah and her boyfriend, Harvey, out for a dinner at a fancy restaurant to celebrate their first anniversary. Leah is exhausted after a long week in work and wishes that she was at home on the couch, but she's trying to be a good sport about it. She reflects upon her father's recent death and on her relationship with Harvey and becomes emotional. Harvey reassures her and surprises her with a marriage proposal, which, after some trepidation, she accepts, not that Harvey notices her hesitation. Then the beginning of the next scene starts, with Leah at work and wanting to be put on a high-stakes case at the firm. And then that concludes the five pages. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, Carly, give us your take on them. All right. So I thought you really got right to the point of things, which was which was excellent. You know, one of the first notes I made was in the second paragraph. You had something that says, like, usually his stern face is softened by a smile, one that others rarely see. Like, I thought you slipped some, like, really nice kind of subtle subtleties in there, which I thought was really simple. Just showed a lot of skill to kind of weave that in while you're trying to get to more plot-based moments. You also got right to the stakes on the first page. You said over the past year, two of us have become a power couple. You kind of named the law firm and explained the whole, like, now they're kind of competing at the same law firm. I think the, those stakes right off the bat are super important. At the end of the day, I do feel like we're spending too long in this ring moment. It's exacerbated by the fact that I only have five pages to read and really like all I'm reading about is them sitting at this restaurant. So it, it's hard because I think 
I don't want to say that like this can't be done, but if we are going to be in this moment for this long, I think we just need a lot more. Like we either need like I, I'm I'm catching myself saying this, I'm saying this, but like maybe a flashback or something. Like we need to like be out of this moment and back into this moment if we are going to stay in the ring scene this long. Like an example, I don't know if you've read Emma Straub's latest this time tomorrow. But she has a she has a little engagement scene in it where I don't want to spoil it for anybody that hasn't read it, but there's an engagement scene in it and the whole like they're at the dark restaurant and like this is happening. And so that might be, again, not like one to copy, but one to see like how can you kind of up the stakes of the ring moment and in they in, the, in her ring moment it's like is she going to accept the proposal essentially right so there, there's opportunity to play around with what the ring means you know is it a family heirloom i don't know there's just like i think there's just like a million more layers if you do want to stick in this ring scene that you can play with otherwise i think we need to be in a little faster to kind of move on from being in one moment because i just don't think we're learning enough about them to be sitting you know a lot of times cc and i talk about and bianca on the podcast we're talking about like movement right and this is just like a sitting scene so we just we're not getting a lot of movement so that was kind of that's my major note so i'm not saying you can't stay in this moment but if you do there's just i think a lot to think about about what that entails can i make a suggestion here in terms of because she's really career orientated can we not have just as he's about to propose she gets a call from the law firm or a major client or something and breaks this romantic moment to kind of show how committed she is to her job and to show that, you know, competitive nature of hers, etc. I don't know. What do you what do you think, Carly? Do you think that might work and yeah. show some conflict and tension? Yeah, I'm nodding along because I'm just thinking like if she gets the call and then the boyfriend doesn't and then he's like, how come you got the call from like, why wasn't I called up for this job? And then, she, you know what I mean? And it's like already we're getting like the tension with the relationship in the same moment. So, yeah, I, I love that idea. I think that's great. It, it creates tension right off the bat. Good work, Bianca. A plus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a great way to show characterization. So it immediately shows us the fierce competitive natures, the dynamic of the couple, and it ruins this kind of romantic moment. And, you know, when she sort of struggles with saying yes, the reader will be like, oh, is it because they've just had an argument about this client or is it about something else? So I just think there's there's some layering to be had there. And of course, she can stand up and walk somewhere else to take the call. So we have movement. Maybe she's ducking and diving waiters and he's craning his neck to try and eavesdrop on what she's talking about. So it gives you like opportunity for movement and, and other things as well. All right. So Noreen, what questions do you have? No, I think that's a great idea. Thank you so much for brainstorming that. I guess my other thought is just like in terms of scene, like what would be a more appropriate length for kind of being in this moment? Because I would expect like if I were to add something like that on, like that would extend it. And I don't want to be too long in the scene either. Yeah, I think I think if you take Bianca's idea, that's kind of a perfect example of what I'm saying, right? It's like, there's no rules about how long this needs to be. It's just it has to be the right amount of time to tell the story in the way that you need to tell it. And so if you have her moving, I think that movement, right, that that helps us feel like we're moving into another scene because we're technically moving into a different part of the restaurant. We are no longer sitting in that seat. We are moving to the phone booth bay or like the coat room. Or, you know what I mean? Like there, there is movement in that sense. So I think that accomplishes a lot of goals. So yeah, so I wouldn't worry too much about length as long as you're introducing a lot of new information, new conflict, new tension, everything like that. Thank you. Any other questions there, Noreen? Perhaps while you have us, I don't know if you want to tell Carly about what your next scene is and to just see if she thinks that'll follow nicely from, from the first one. Yes, yeah, actually, that would be great. So then the next scene that it goes into is like the main character at work and they're just going into the meeting where she's going to get, end up getting the high stakes case that 
Harvey wanted. And then there's okay. going to be some tension there and some introduction of some of the side characters. Yeah. And he's, is he going to be in that meeting as well? Yeah, he's going to be at that meeting as well. And he's not going to be happy, but also trying to tone it down since they just got engaged. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm thinking is, so in the opening scene, you could all you could also I'm just trying to think about where your dialogue starts with them just scrolling up because his first thing that he says is like, you look great, right? And then so we're all like, we start right in the, the love moment. So you could even have them like talking about work and then like watching him position it to be like weaving back into the romance and then if she gets the call potentially planting the seeds for this case in this scene and then we move into that scene it's like that creates a lot of flow right from page one so there's there's a good opportunity there i think to make that flow a little bit more in terms of like that that early dialogue to just show just from that first paragraph that they are multi-dimensional people just something there that I wanted to add is, you know, I find couples that work together in these kind of situations, like they're, the way they communicate with each other in private at home, you know, when they're having a romantic dinner is kind of different to the workplace communication. So I think you can have a lot of fun there with showing their competitive kind of shorthand, you know, when they're dealing with work stuff and then when they move into, you know, the lovey-dovey kind of romantic stuff as well. And then when you move to that second thing, we sing them again in, in that work environment. So, you know, I think that will reveal a lot about character. And remember, each scene needs to move the plot forward and reveal things about character that we didn't know before. So we're going to get a lot through seeing these kinds of um, interactions, which I think will really be interesting. Yeah. Another thing I was thinking was um, about what it is about him that she likes. And so perhaps it is um, that competitiveness, seeing him in a work environment. And so there's that whole balance of that power play, right? If she's in the position of power or when he's in the position of power, how that affects their relationship. And so maybe the scene starts off like this, the ring scene, the restaurant scene with them talking about work and her just being like turned on by the fact she's like, yes, you know, I like that, you know, he's this, that and the other, right? And then it flips to like her being in the power position about getting this call. And then she thinks about how that affects the dynamic of their relationship. And then you can add that like the power imbalance in there with with everything else. Thank you. That's a great idea. Yeah, there's there's really a lot to play around with and, and a lot to unpack here. There's lots of layers, lots of nuance for, you know, you to explore. So, yeah, great work, Noreen. Did you have any other questions for us? No, I think you answered all of them. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. So now it's time for our next author. Lane, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to have you. And let's hear your query letter. Great. Thanks for having me. Dear Bianca, Cece, and Carly, I spend more time listening to the three of you every week than I do most people in my life and sometimes forget we're not all in-person friends. Earlier this year, you critiqued my work on the podcast, and I'd love your help again. This submission is cheeky because I'm including two versions of the query letter. Cece, you always say you love sneaky, and I'm counting on this to earn your forgiveness. I am afraid my original query gives too much away, so I drafted a second letter, but I feel it's too vague. In short, I'm struggling and would love your insights. I've included the modified query at the top, followed by three pages of the novel due to the aforementioned sneakiness, then the original query letter at the end. Anatomy of a Family, an 89,000 word, multi-POV, dual timeline, upmarket novel merges the generational themes and tone of Ashley Aldrain's The Push with the complexities of adoption and family life in This Is Us. Content note, substance abuse, kids and care, sexual assault. Maggie, an overachieving doctor, has succeeded at everything in her life. School, sports, relationships. 
Now that she's a mom, she has two ambitions for her family, to save her six-year-old daughter Elle from the mysterious ailment that's destroying her body and to adopt a younger sibling for her. Maggie's husband, Keith, is only privy to one of these aspirations. Forced into foster care at the age of six, 15-year-old Danny is just trying to survive. High school, the snubs of her crush, and life with Uncle Shit. When she gets a call that her mom, Susan, might be dying, she reluctantly rushes to her hospital bedside where she meets Maggie. After Maggie realizes that she and Danny share a history with Susan, she cultivates a friendship with Danny, keeping her identity a secret from the teen and the entire relationship hidden from Keith. When tests reveal Susan is pregnant, Maggie sets her sights on adopting the baby but doesn't tell Keith, piling one more lie between them. When Susan disappears from the hospital, Maggie and Danny embark on a desperate search for her, each for different reasons. Standing on a precarious ledge of secrets, Maggie knows finding Susan will mean adding to the perfect family she and Keith have worked so hard to build or tearing it apart forever. I studied photojournalism and writing at Western Kentucky University. This is my fourth novel. I recently parted amicably from my agent, redacted at redacted, and I'm happy to answer any questions about this. When not writing or working my day jobs, you can find me drinking wine while attempting to corral my sassy kindergartner or equally sassy chickens. Thank you for your time and consideration and accepting my unconventional submission. Warmly, Lane. Awesome, Lane. Thank you so much. Right, Cece, let's see if the cheekiness paid off. What did you think? I love sneakiness. I stand by my words. Forgiven and appreciated, Lane. It's... It's all good. I also want to say that I also do forget that sometimes I'm not friends in real life with the listeners from the podcast. Like, and you are one of them, right? Like, we always interact on social media. It's so much fun. And you were like super ethical in your sneakiness, too, because you did, as you mentioned, alter the word count of the pages to make sure that you did not go over. So, this is totally fine. I will give you my notes on the first query letter. And then I will tell you that. I read the second query letter, and at first I was like, probably she's just overthinking this. But but you were right. You were giving too much away in the second one. And I think I have the solution. I have a proposition for you anyway. So, okay, let's get started. Plot paragraph, which is always the most important thing. When you write, Maggie's husband, Keith, is only privy to one of these aspirations, I would just write the former. You know, I'm assuming that that's the... the aspiration that he's privy to or the latter if I'm wrong but I would just write which one try to be as specific as possible because this is set up this is not a reveal that like the plot is not dependent on this reveal like which one of the aspirations he doesn't know like and if I'm incorrect about anything that I'm saying like you'll obviously tell me in in a little while but yeah I would just specify that so next paragraph the one that starts with forced into foster care Here's how I would do it. And you don't have to worry about taking notes because you will get the written notes. All of our Kofi subscribers get it too and anyone who's on the podcast with us. When she gets a call that her mom, Susan, might be dying, she reluctantly rushes to the hospital bedside, right? Like to her hospital bedside, period. I would stop the sentence there. And then I would have a new sentence there, Danny and Maggie meet. Separate these two things to give each of them more weight and also because that way, that last sentence segs nicely into a you know, like they meet. And why does this matter? The next paragraph will tell us. Again, when I read this letter and not the other one, I was thinking, share a history with Susan, you know, a, a friendship with, with Danny. Like, why, why is this so vague? And I was a little frustrated. However, having read the reveal, I guess, I guess I can say this now, I do understand your concern. So I would write an unlikely friendship with Danny 
right? That she cultivates an unlikely friendship since that is something that editors are always looking for. Agents are always looking for unlikely friendships, unlikely connections. It's adding one word and it makes a big difference. Also, what about a little on Danny's interiority? Like, isn't she weirded out by this old lady doctor who wants to be friends with her? I know she's not an old lady, but she is in a teen's mind, right? Like, 32 is old for a teenager. However old she is, is old for a teenager. Or perhaps she's happy that she's finally found an adult who she actually likes. So that's another question I had. And if you can find a way to weave that in without too many words, it would be nice and it would be appreciated. Not necessary, but appreciated. One thing that I do think is necessary. So towards the end of the paragraph, you do have the major dramatic question, right? Like Maggie knows that finding Susan will mean adding to the perfect family she and Keith have worked so hard to build or tearing it apart forever. That's the major dramatic question for Maggie. What about for Danny? So for I would add a sentence. And for Danny, finding her mother means whatever it means, whether it's ensuring that her her sister, like because her mom's pregnant, I don't know if that's how she sees the baby, will not have the life that she had, she, Danny. Like, I don't, again, I don't know what the major dramatic question is for Danny, but since this seems to be dual point of view, again, correct me if I'm wrong in a second, you need a major dramatic question for each of the characters or else Danny just feels like a side character in her own story, right? Like we have two protagonists here. So this is, this is super important. Okay. Now having read the second query letter, here is what I would do. I would frame the major dramatic question Actually, not even the major dramatic question. I would frame encounter of of Maggie and Susan and, of course, Danny. Something like this, and you'll polish it. Maggie tells Keith that her interest in Danny is purely medical. Danny can offer insight into Elle's condition, purposely leaving out the shocking connection they share. Something like that. And I know that maybe she hasn't even told Keith anything, so maybe that wouldn't work. Maybe you could change that if that doesn't work, or maybe you can't. But it's more about showing you that show what she does reveal to her husband, you know, and show a plausible reason, an intelligent reason why this protagonist would want to spend time with Danny, Susan, whoever, and then actually say there is a shocking connection they share. The reader will probably figure it out just because it's something that I thought of before I even read the second query letter, but that's not a bad thing. It's just theories and your brain being rewarded by theories. So Okay, I will stop talking now so you can ask me questions. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Lane, what questions do you have? Um, that is so helpful. Thank you. I feel like you're so kind. <laughs> after, Of course, I like second-guessed myself after I submitted this. I was like, it's a hot mess, but I feel like you've just made it. You're making it work, and I really, really appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Hopefully, I can decipher some of my notes, and maybe I'll have to listen to this podcast again. All that to say, I did have a couple of questions On the note of comps, I have struggled through a few different comp options. Originally, I had Four Good Days. I've also recently read, based on someone's recommendation, The Love of My Life. And I didn't know, I feel like maybe The Love of My Life is a better comp, but I didn't know if y'all had any thoughts on that. I loved The Love of My Life. I thought it was an amazing, amazing book. And I think I might have told you, Lane, did I not tell you to read yeah. The Love of My Life? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I think <laughs> I think that would be a great comp balanced with, with something else. I don't know, Cece, what do you think? Not read The Love of My Life, and now I will because it's, you know, obviously highly recommended. I will say that This Is Us seems like a really good comp for this, but The Push does not. And I say this being obsessed with The Push – I cannot wait for Ashley's new novel. 
but it just has such atmospheric it has a specific tone and feel that novel because of the second person hybrid because of the relationship between the mother and the daughter being right off the bat just so fraught i just i feel like tonally your story is completely different i do feel like tonally it's more this is us than the push and so you know promising me the push and delivering me your pages would frustrate me even though i like this is us as well. So it shouldn't frustrate me from a taste perspective. But it does because if you promise someone, you know, a type of thing and you give them a different type even though you like two types, it's still it still messes with the expectation. Yeah, in in which case then I think this is us and the love of my life. I think those will be two really great comps. Okay, that's super helpful. Thank you. And then maybe those are all my questions for right now. <laughs> I think I, I started writing down a list of questions, but you know, now in the mo- pressure of the moment, They're all gone. No worries. You'll have some time at the end. So what we're going to ask Lane now is if you could give our listeners an indication of what's in those opening pages. Okay. So in the opening pages, we see Maggie, who is the doctor at the grocery store buying some food. She thinks she sees someone that she knows and she gets upset. She goes across the aisles to or across the produce section to find this woman, you know, and get face to face with her and see if it is her. It's it ends up not being her. And then we fast forward to her at home. She and her husband are chit chatting. And as Keith goes to bed, she pulls out her computer and starts searching online someone's profile. And then before she goes to bed, she stops by her daughter's room and checks on her, checks her temperature checks her vital signs, and then just says, I'm going to save my daughter. Awesome, Lane. Thank you. Okay, Cece, what was your take on those? I want to start by saying that these are really strong, and I can tell that you put so much work into them, and thank you. And obviously, I could be wrong, but I feel like my notes are always so much more specific and better when the foundation is already so strong, which is what we have here. So I have notes for you, but please know this is very, very good. Okay. First paragraph, she sees the woman. We don't know who the woman is. And we get her reaction in her body, which I love. You did a great, you do a good job throughout all these pages with like sensations in the body, right? And we do feel in the body. Our body is connected to our mind. What we're not getting and what I think we need is directed interiority to propel story forward curiosity. So for example, we have the line that reads, leaving my cart, I plow past the carrots and cucumbers and I'm by her side, bumping her elbow so she'll turn, heart pounding, palm sweaty, I have to see her face. Great line, keep it. But can we also get a clue about what she will do when she finally gets there? When the woman turns around and she faces her. At this point, she still thinks it's her, right? Like the her with a capital H. Why is this a finally moment for her? Clues can be something like, I can't wait to see the look of fear in her eyes when she sees me, or I can't let her get away again. Now, while these two examples would also not add anything truly concrete to the story, it does give context to their relationship. And this context would indicate clues to the reader. You would be planting curiosity seeds that the protagonist is, again, in the example's looking forward to making her fearful, or that this person has escaped her before. And those clues send signals to our brain. Signals that say, we are putting a puzzle together. And that makes our brain read on because all books are puzzles. All books are puzzles, no matter if it's literary or commercial or whatever, they're all puzzles. So that is one note. Second note, 
at the end of the second paragraph, which is one isolated sentence, great job isolating the sentence, we have only it's not her. Again, amazing job isolating. That's exactly what, what I would recommend. But here's my question. Can we get contrast? The woman that she does see is stronger, older, younger. The woman could never be the her because the her would never wear, I don't know, Lululemons. This is important because detail and specificity paint a picture, but also because, again, clues. You know, if you say she would never be caught in Lululemons, that's a specific kind of person. As in, why not? Is she not sporty? Would she not wear brand apparel? Like what, what is the reason? And these, again, this all gets embedded into our brain and it all keeps us invested in the story. Okay, third note. I, I swear I have lots of notes only because this is very good. If it had been her, what would I have done? Snatch the bright peppers, splatter them across the sticky floor in protest. Great job immersing this in scene and keeping us in the setting of the grocery store. But here's the thing. It's great that she's wondering what she actually would have done, but only if she knows what she thinks she would have done. In other words, when we humans are running into someone that we've wanted to run into for a very long time, we have visuals of what we'll do. Sometimes it's many options. Sometimes it's one option. But of course, whether we actually, you know, go through with it is a totally different story. And it's healthy that she knows that what she would have done is different from what she thinks she would have done. But our minds are never blank canvases. We think in specific, we think in full scenes. We don't think, I need to see her, and then don't complete the sentence with, to do this. And again, it could be various options. So I would find a way to subtly weave that in. When you mention, for example, sending a stiffness up my spine... I would change this. I would do two different sentences, like finish the sentence at temple. And then I feel my spine stiffen. And then the emotion, I, whatever emotion that this is how I feel around my husband now. I want her thinking about the reaction she's having to her own husband with a sense of emotion. And I, I probably did not explain this right to our listeners, only to you. We have a scene where she is at home and her husband gives her a kiss, an unhurried kiss on her temple. And that sends a stiffness up her spine. And I think that we can go deeper. We can add a layer of emotionality beyond the physical description. It could be, for example, I'm still surprised that this is how I feel around my husband now. I'm still not used to feeling this way around him. I, I don't know what it could be, but that would indicate, you know, how long has she felt this way about him? Is this strange to her? Does this bother her? How characters feel about their emotionality is a big part of emotionality because it exists in layers. Last line of the first page. I can still see her hands on his collar, tapered fingers, nails painted a shiny maroon. Again, this is her inner life. Is is this the same her as the her in the grocery store? Like the fact he's saying it's nothing, she means nothing to me. And is it the same person? I love that I don't know. Not asking. Don't tell me. But if it is, I would connect it through inner life. I would say something like, I could tell him that I saw her today at the store. I don't have to tell him that when I looked closer, it wasn't really her. Like that would really up, up the tension. And if it's not her, just don't change it. Because then we will think, oh, is it the same her? I don't know. I'm going to read to find out. So again, excellent. The line, I attempt to deconstruct the social history to figure out how we are, where we are here today. Very intriguing. Absolutely beautiful. The line, every night, even every night, those even exhales are their own sort of mystery. 
beautiful. Again, spectacular. You're doing a really great job. I was wondering, and I'm telling you this so you know what was going through my brain when I was reading this, but I was wondering when I read kneeling, I go through the motions, temperature check, pulse check. I was going, does she resent having to do this every night and not her husband? Or is today her turn? And maybe yesterday was his turn. Or maybe she's one of those people who like wants to do everything herself and like she loves doing it every night. And then, of course, the next paragraph disabused me of those questions because she hides the notebook, right? Like she tucks it in where no one else can find it. And I was like, oh, okay. He doesn't even know that she does this. So just want to say very excellent. As you can see, like my notes are just so specific. When my notes are this specific in terms of like paragraph three, line two, this is what, it, it just means the foundation is strong. And this is when I feel like I, I can really add value, like obviously, hopefully, because I always say, you know, being an, a, a literary agent is a little bit like being a real estate agent in the following sense. We can help stage a house. We can make it a little bit better, but we can't do plumbing. We can't do foundation. That's just, we don't have the time for that. We can't get too close to a work to that degree because it's just not helpful. So you did a really fantastic job and I hope these notes were helpful. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Elaine, the floor is now yours. What questions or comments do you have? Oh, thank you so much for those notes. I feel like, to be honest, <laughs> y'all probably might be getting this a lot. I actually have changed the opening pages since I submitted these a few months ago, but I think I have these sections and they're just like arranged a little bit differently and some more things are in between. So all of your notes are super helpful. I really appreciate it. It's a, a bit of a short first chapter. Do you think you got a sense of like enough of a sense of what the story is going to be about or their, their dynamics within like such a short, yeah, it's like a short selection. I definitely got an above average sense, given that all I read were three pages, right? So I I can tell there's a fraught relationship with the husband. I can tell she's keeping secrets from him. I, again, wanted to know how she feels about that, not about the secrets, about how their relationship is beyond the physicality of the body, like I mentioned. But I got a sense. I just think you can dig deeper and it can be fixed with like one line. One line can fix that. So it's not going to take up too much space. And in terms of the her, I love how mysterious it is. I did want more clues, like I said, but I do not want the reveal just yet. So it's keeping me immersed. It's it's definitely making me specifically curious. I think that you are at a point where it's about tightening, not so much about changing. And I know, like like you said, you changed the pages. So this might be a moat point, but it's a really strong place to start a meeting that ends up not happening because you immediately take us to a new scene. Like you don't spend five pages on it because if you had, that would have been frustrating. But also you immediately take us to a new scene where I want to know who this woman is who doesn't mean anything to her husband. I want to know why she's keeping that notebook a secret and her nightly routine with her daughter a secret. I want to know all these things. So that is that is your job. Your job as a storyteller is to make me ask specific questions. And you're doing that. So brava. Great. Thank you so much. To be honest, I had won the critique with Bianca. Do y'all remember that last fall? And so Bianca read the first 60 pages of this for me and gave me incredible feedback. So I like props to her all of like basically this whole first chapter was <laughs> Bianca's idea. So you hadn't seen it executed, Bianca, because you saw like the earlier draft. But this is this is the transformation. Props to Bianca for that. So thank you for all that y'all do. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate your time today. And also props to you for, for doing the hard work of making the changes. Yeah, Thanks. something that I do want to say, Lane, and this is for all of our listeners. Lane is just so open to feedback you know we as writers can be really precious about our work and be like no I've worked on this I'm not going to change it but honestly the magic happens when you are open to suggestions and Lane just 
takes the feedback and immediately runs with it. And it's always wonderful to see that elevation of, of the work. And I think it's something we as writers, we can all learn from this because I feel like it's a, it's a wonderful trait to have. Okay, so that's it for today's Books with Hooks. Thank you so much, Lane and Noreen, for joining us. We are now going to today's guest. My latest novel, The Witches of Moonshine Manor, releases on the 23rd of August, and I'm super excited to be doing a few tour stops over August to November in order to promote it. I'll be visiting Atlanta, Chicago, Washington, D.C., Milwaukee, and Boston, as well as doing a few events in and around Toronto. If you live near any of these cities, I'd love to get to meet you at one of the events. Please check my tour schedule on BiancaMarae.com for details. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. 
But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Today's guest is a writer, indie bookseller, and general life enthusiast. When she's not shouting about her favorite new books, she loves theater, baking, rock climbing, marching band, and the overall pursuit of adventure. If forced to choose, her favorite Austin hero is Edward Ferrers, though she'll always have a soft spot for Mr. Bingley. She lives in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with her husband and her cat. It's my pleasure to welcome Amanda Quain. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Bianca. I'm so happy to be here. And I am thrilled to have you here because here's the thing for our listeners. I met Amanda when I was on book tour at her bookstore and it was just amazing to get to chat with her. And you guys know from listening to the podcast how much I love indie bookstores and how much I absolutely love booksellers. So when I saw on social media that Amanda had her own novel coming out, which is called Accomplished, a George Darcy novel, I absolutely had to speak to her. So Amanda, can you take us through your transition from bookseller to debut author? Yes, definitely. Transition's a funny word because I'm still doing both. It's just a matter of balancing them. But I've been pursuing writing for years, as so many of us have been. Uh, it's never a quick journey. And I really loved getting to pursue that journey alongside book selling. So I was interacting with authors like you all the time. I was seeing sort of how the sausage got made. And then I felt like when I did sign my book deal and start on this journey, I had a bit of a leg up just sort of information and knowledge-wise over the average debut author because I sort of knew what happened on our end and how we interacted with authors and how we best liked for authors to interact with us. Yeah, and we say on the podcast all the time, and it's one of the reasons we do the podcast, that knowledge is power. If you're going to come into this profession, it's the same as if you were going to become an accountant or a choreographer, whatever the case may be, is you need to know the business, you need to understand it, you need to study it so that you can become a part of it. And certainly what you were seeing was what was happening behind the scenes. But I don't think that that specifically helped you write this book per se. So can you tell us a bit about the inspiration for the novel? Because I absolutely love the premise. So for our listeners, it's a sparkling contemporary YA retelling of Pride and Prejudice, but this time we are front and centering Georgie Darcy, who played a very small role in Pride and Prejudice. So can you take us through the inspiration, how long it took you to write this, how you found your agent, and then your publisher? Yes, definitely. So the inspiration for it came, as it so often does, from about a million places. Interestingly, this was actually my first attempt at a contemporary YA. This was my third book that I had on submission. So I'd signed an agent two books ago, actually gone through two different agents. Um, I'm on my second agent now. And before this, I'd written 
fantasy with a twist, or the, my first one was dystopian, my second one was like a portal fantasy. So this is my first straight contemporary attempt. And although it was a genre I read constantly, it wasn't one that I'd ever really considered dabbling in, if only because I always felt like it was easier to come up with plots for books that have magic in them or large government overthrows. Even now, like during my edits, occasionally I'll be like, oh, what is plot in a contemporary novel? They, they just kiss, right? Is that a plot? Um, but we did, when I was sort of working towards this, I had another book out on submission, and the best thing to do when you do that, of course, is to write the next book. And I had at the time been spending a lot of time thinking about Pratt and Prejudice. One of my best friends, Rebecca Spees, who you know, Bianca, uh, she's a fellow bookseller at One More Page, she and I had recently written a play together, because we both come from theater as well, um, that was called Hey Darcy, a Bromantic Comedy. And it was our examination of the relationship between Bingley and Darcy and the bromance, really, between them. So it sort of followed them on their road trip to Netherfield at the beginning of Pride and Prejudice and then also their grand tour of Europe when they were 18, just like being stupid teenage boys cavorting throughout society. So, and she played Darcy and I played Bingley. So I spent a lot of time in the headspace of these characters, uh, specifically Darcy, who has such an interesting internal monologue which you see so little of in Pride and Prejudice because, of course, he's like, I am Darcy. And this is my one feeling. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but when I got more into his headspace, I'm like, this is really interesting. Like, how does a person like this move throughout the world? And then from there, I was sort of thinking about other characters in Pride and Prejudice. And, of course, when you think about Darcy, you have to think about Georgiana because she is also a Darcy, but she has so little time in the book. She has no lines in the original Pride and Prejudice. She actually, I think people expect more of her because of the adaptations. She's made bigger in the movies, which is great. We love her. We love all the adaptations of her. But I'd always sort of looked at her and been like, man, she had a terrible thing happen to her with Wickham. He told her he loved her. Then he abandoned her because he got scared off. And she was like 15 at the time. I was very easily traumatized at 15 by things like that. And I just, she was always portrayed as being fine, and I just didn't think that she would be. At the same time, and this is the less literary influence for this book, the Jonas Brothers got back together. A major influence on all of our work, I'm sure, at the time. <laughs> yeah, I know, it's influenced all of my work, 100%. <laughs> oh yeah, 100%. There's actually, there was sort of a Kafka revival around it, I think, um, coming into it. So I, you know, as a true millennial, had been very into the Jonas Brothers when I was in high school, and when they got back together, I was very excited, and I watched a documentary about them. And the documentary was about sort of how they had broken up, and how it had affected their family, and how they came together again. And it got me thinking a lot about that sort of sibling relationship. When you're such a high-stress situation, and then you're torn apart for one reason or another, what that does to your relationship. And you could just see, like, in their interviews, the middleest brother, Joe, he would always, like, have his arm around one of his brothers or something like that. I'm like, oh my god, these guys love each other so much, but they had such a hard thing happen to them. And from there, I was like, okay, so what happened to Darcy and to Georgiana? Like, surely their relationship had to be impacted by that in some way. And from there, we come straight to the opening line of Accomplished, which is, my big brother, Fitzwilliam Darcy, could suck it. I, honestly, one of the best opening lines ever. So I actually want to read it to our listeners. I, I was going to do that anyway, but yeah. So 
My big brother, Fitzwilliam Darcy, could suck it. I mean, seriously. He'd already spent the last six months being whatever the brother equivalent of a helicopter parent was, but this truly took things to a whole new level. He didn't even pretend this little Saturday visit was because he missed me, his one and only sister. It was explicably to check in on me to make sure I had plans to do my homework and go to class and not illegally deal Adderall to my fellow high schoolers, which is not at all what you're expecting from a sort of... Pride and Prejudice retelling. So just a question here on something you said earlier. How old was Wickham in, in the novel? Was he the same age as Darcy? Because I think Darcy was like 28, 29, wasn't he? Or was he younger? I'm actually not sure we have a very definitive answer, but he was raised alongside um, Darcy. So he's around his age. I would assume, I would hope, a couple of years younger to make this a little less horrifying. But he still definitely is firmly an adult and was firmly taking advantage of Georgiana in that way. So when it comes to modern day retellings of these kind of classics, are there rules? And it sounds ridiculous to say because it's fiction. You can do what the bloody hell you want. You make shit up as much as you want. But for you, did you create rules in terms of how closely you were going to stick with it, how far you were going to go? Because I think you already, you made the age difference between them much narrower. Darcy in this is much younger than he was in Pride and Prejudice. So take us through kind of the rules you created for yourself, if you did at all. I don't know that I created any sort of hard and fast rules consciously, but subconsciously, I think the most important thing about an adaptation is that the characters should be recognizable. You know, the reason why we love these stories is because of the characters and because we connect with them, especially Jane Austen stories. Like, we all love the plots and the romance, of course, but we're here for Lizzie. We're here for Darcy. So I really wanted them to be recognizable in this work, um, which was an interesting task for Georgiana because, of course, she barely exists in the original work. I do think that her internal monologue supports what we see in the story because we only ever see her trying to be on her best in the book. And while, of course, in Accomplished, she's not always at her best, I like to think those are just the things you weren't seeing in the original. Um, But I definitely did change a few things for the contemporary setting, things like the age difference. I didn't want to have to deal with particularly with Wickham being that much older than Georgiana. That's a whole barrel of worms that no one needs to dig into. The power dynamic is still bad when they're both teenagers. And then, of course, bringing Fitz down just into a more manageable sibling age difference, because I liked the idea that when... So in in this version of the story, um, their dad dies when Georgiana is in middle school and their mom leaves. She just sort of never really wanted to be a mother and dips. I think Georgiana calls it her. She goes on an eat, pray, love and just gets out of there. And so Fitz is 16 when this happens. Or he's he's 16 or 17, which is around the same age that Georgiana is in our story. And so I really wanted to examine the idea that, like, Fitz was also, we call him Fitz and Accomplished, was also a child when this happened to him. And he has been carrying the weight of this trauma, just like Georgiana has, just expresses it very differently, which is sort of how their relationship clashes over the course of the book. Yeah, I must be honest. I always loved Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice. I know a ton of people hated how buttoned up he was. And like you say, he's one emotion. But I really just saw him as someone who had all this responsibility thrust on him and just had to kind of step up. And so wasn't just able to relax and be himself and become himself because he he stepped into this role. And maybe it's my inner Capricorn. I bet you he was a Capricorn. I wonder if they mentioned his birthday. I'll need to look that up. But when it comes to writing YA, Amanda, what are the kind of things that the YA authors out there need to be looking for? Because what scares me is when I hear from someone who says they're writing YA and 
then they kind of tell you that they don't read YA. And that freaks me the hell out because I'm like, this is a very difficult genre to write. It's honestly one of the genres I don't think that I'll ever write in because you need to capture the teenage experience, the teenage voice, the angst, everything else. You've got to have really good storytelling because YA readers need to be engaged. They need to love a character. I've never seen readers fall so in love with characters as YA readers do. Like they become really obsessed with these characters. So what's your advice to those writing in the genre? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. Reading it is the number one thing you can do. And it's so much fun to read. I don't know why you wouldn't want to. It's pacey. It's fast. It's fun. You're in the heads of these amazing characters. I I mean, the reason I write YA is because I never stopped reading it. You know, even when I kind of left the teenage age and came into my 20s and then my 30s, it's still just, they're the books that I seek out and they're the books that I love. I, I do at this point now sometimes identify more with the parents in the books than I did when I was 16, but I just have a healthier appreciation for that relationship. But yeah, I think reading as broadly and as widely in YA as you can, and especially these days, there's so much good YA out there to read of every genre you could possibly imagine. And I also, for me, I seek a lot of my inspiration in movies and TV shows as well, because there is really good work for teens being put out at the moment. I'm a big fan of High School Musical, the musical, the series, which is a ridiculously named show, but is so fun and is so much in that teenage mindset. And if you can, like, don't only do this if you're in a position where you can do this appropriately, but interacting with teens in the world is so much fun. I always, whenever um, teens come into the bookstore, we're all like, oh my gosh, teens because they're so much fun to talk to and I love to see what they're into and the way that they're passionate about things because that was such an important part of my teenage experience were these deep deep passions and fandom which I touch on a little bit and accomplished and the like obsessive way that you can move through the world because you're experiencing everything for the first time it's just it's such a fun time of life yeah and you included fan fiction as well in the piece. Is this something that you were writing when you were younger? Were you into fan fiction or is this something that you've now looked into when you were writing this book? Oh yeah, fan fiction was my entire life. I really I learned to write by cutting my teeth on fan fiction. I was very very deep into the various communities. Um I did both fan fiction and I did online RPGs which there were some sites where people would write like a sentence and then the other person would write a sentence. I ended up on sites where people would write five or six paragraphs about just one line of dialogue and then the next person would come in and talk about that. It's funny, I actually, I think that that world is where I first realized I had a distinctive voice for storytelling because I was doing a RPG set in a certain unnamed magical school that we won't talk about. Hold on on a second. So for our listeners, we've got some listeners who don't know the lingo. So just explain RPGs for them. Yeah, so RPGs are role-playing games. So the basic idea is you're on a website, you have a fake character that you interact as. So say, just this is not the fandom I was interacting with, but for sake of the explanation, we'll say it's a Lord of the Rings RPG. I could be perhaps Bilba, a young hobbit moving through the world um, and interacting with other hobbits in the Shire. And you'll like post like, oh, I went down to the Shire town. I don't know a lot about Lord of the Rings. I'm in the for the aesthetic more than the actual knowledge of it. And I go to the store and I see what's going on there. And the storekeeper might pop in and be like, hello, Bilba, it's so nice to see you today. Let's have a conversation. And then you'll basically do out a scene over posts on forums. This was a long time ago. This technology is fairly obsolete at this point. And you'll just build out a story over the course of months and weeks and years between your various characters. 
Yeah, and there, what the the value in that is, as writers, we need to inhabit our characters. We become them. We see the world through their eyes. It's kind of like being an actor, which you and Rebecca understand as well, because you both were in theater, etc. So playing these kind of role-playing games really helps in terms of putting you in the character's head. And when it comes to fan fiction, it's looking at how an author did something. It's looking at their sentence construction. It's looking at how they did characterization, etc. And it's learning kind of through emulating or praising their work. And what Amanda was saying earlier is, we will not name the magical world because it's become problematic now because of she who shall not be named views on, on trans people, et cetera, et cetera, which is hugely problematic. But I think I learned a lot of my storytelling from, from those books as well. Yeah, it just, it was a, it was not the only fan fiction I dabbled in. I was also in the um, Neopets fan fiction community, which is somehow more embarrassing when you talk about it now because those are small virtual avatars of animals. But it was great. And I just like, I remember specifically, I did on one of my RPGs, you could choose, you could like sign up to play professors, and the professor's identities were secret. So you had to submit an application and get chosen, and I got chosen to be one. And in one of the other forums on the site, they had like a little thing where you could guess who was playing each professor. And from the day I first posted, every single person was like, that's Amanda, that's Amanda, that's Amanda, that's Amanda. And I was like, huh, I guess I have kind of distinct a distinctive way of speaking in these in the written word. And that was the first time I really realized I had a specific voice, which especially for YA is so important. Voice is key in young adult fiction. Let's talk about interiority. So on the podcast, we're always saying a character needs to have interiority. We need to have access to their thoughts, to their feelings, to their reasoning, etc. And I kind of feel like it's even more important in YA than in adult novels, because so much of being a teenager in the world is dealing with this angst of being a teenager. It's overthinking things. It's having a breakup and really dwelling on it, etc., etc. So for you, how... How did you capture this kind of interiority? Yeah, so I will say, I think for me, it comes a little easier than most because my mind is always going a mile a minute. So I have a fairly aggressive and active internal monologue, which makes translating that into the page a fairly doable task. I think a lot of it for me does come from that theater background that we talked about a little bit, because so much about that is either on the page expressing an internal monologue or in the work you do to prepare for that, creating that internal monologue. And I had always been interested in that, especially in the course of getting really deep into a character. It's where I first dabbled in adaptation, which of course accomplished is. I remember my freshman year of college, I was in a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, super fun play, and I played Peter Quince, who is the head of the mechanicals. So a small role, but fun. I was, you know, I was a freshman, I had a great time. And one of the directors asked us all to like go home and write just a little piece about sort of the background and the internal voice of our characters. And I think she must have been expecting three or four paragraphs probably. And I came back with 15 pages. I, I was given a Twix bar afterwards as a thank you for my good work. But I just I really love digging into that internal voice because the way people's minds tick is so interesting. Yeah, uh, 100%. And uh, that definitely comes through in your work. Now, remember for our listeners, we don't want too much interiority because otherwise the story becomes complete telling rather than showing. So we want interiority, but we also want scene. We want things happening on the page. We want dialogue. We want action, etc., etc. And you write dialogue incredibly well, Amanda. There's scenes between Georgie and Fitz where 
there's this tension between them based on things that happened in the past and we don't quite understand in the beginning what it is, but we feel this awkwardness, we feel this tension. Do you have advice for emerging writers in terms of writing dialogue? Thank you so much. Dialogue is definitely where I see as my strength. We often joke, my agent and I, that my first drafts are just two headless voices speaking in an empty room because description is not my strong suit. I have to add that in in layers afterwards. For me, it's a lot about listening and talking to people. I, as you can tell, love chatting and love talking to people and I love banter and the back and forth of the like the tennis match of conversation, especially in these high tension situations, is so interesting. So eavesdrop, you know, like go to the coffee shop where you're working, put your headphones in because you don't want to be talked to, but don't put anything on and just listen to the way people talk and the things that they say and they don't and they don't say. I also do love, again, like I watch a lot of movies, I watch a lot of TV shows, especially sitcoms. I'm a huge fan of The Office, and I think you can see that in my dialogue, that the back and forth and the speed of it, particularly. I, I love a good quip, and places like The Office absolutely nail that. And just to finish on something you said earlier, you spoke about how this was your second agent. So I'm assuming that when your first novel didn't sell, you then changed agents. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because we have a ton of listeners who are trying to get their first agent who kind of feel that as soon as they land an agent, they will be set for life and this is who they're staying with. And we say on the show that an agent is kind of like a marriage. It's an extremely important relationship in your life. There needs to be the right chemistry between you and your agent. They've got to share a vision of this life, this writing life that you want. So can you just Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, definitely. So I will say changing agents was one of the scariest things I ever did in my entire life. Um, So if you're in a place where you're looking into doing that, it's okay to be horrified because it's a very scary prospect. Mine was not necessarily by choice. My first agent left the business. So I did not have to make the choice of should I stick with this agent or not? She decided that for me, which in a way made it easier because I love my agent I'm with now and she's a great fit for my career and I wouldn't have ended up with her if my first agent hadn't left the business. But I had a slightly unusual path to my second agent, um, Mo, in that I had queried her initially when I was first querying and she liked the book and she was considering doing an R&R, but we hadn't really heard back. For And I was like, you know, I actually have an offer from this other agent who I had found through a Twitter event. And she's like, yeah, you know, we consider the R&R. But I was like, well, I have an offer. I'll stick with that. So I went out with my first agent with my first book. We did we did a ton of revisions before we went out. And it, it went out to a small list, but didn't go out super widely because it just wasn't on sub for that long before my agent left the business. So I actually emailed my now second agent, Mo, and said like, hey... I know this is a little unusual, but we had been friendly. We have a lot of shared interests that we had chatted about in our email when I was querying. So I felt like I could at least try this approach. And I said, hey, my agent left the business. I did a ton of revisions on the first book since you last saw it, and it hasn't gone out that widely. So if you would consider taking a look at it again and maybe consider that R&R again, what do you think? So it was very different from, you know, a formal querying process for that second time. But she agreed to look at it. She loved the direction that we'd gone with in the revisions. And I think she also loved that she saw that I could do a revision, which was the most important thing for her, that I would take on the notes that she would then give me. Uh, So I ended up signing with Mo, and we've been together ever since. Coming up on, gosh, five or six years now, something like that. 
I love that story because I think sometimes as writers we go, oh, I'd rather go with the agent who doesn't need me to do revisions. But you do end up doing revisions with that agent anyway. And you go, well, this is a done deal, whereas this person wants me to revise and resubmit and then they're going to decide. But sometimes that's the way to go and definitely never burn bridges. Every now and again on Twitter, you'll see some dude who's emailed an agent and gone, your loss for not representing me and saying some other nasty things, which definitely burns bridges. So always keep those options open. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. For our listeners, I'm putting Accomplished on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If you buy it through there, you support an independent bookstore who we love. You support Amanda and you support the podcast at the same time. Amanda, we wish you much luck with this book. I absolutely loved it. And I hope you get to do more in a, in a series. I'm keeping everything crossed for you. Thank you so much, Bianca. I do have a book two coming out um, next year. So you'll keep an eye out for that. And maybe we can chat again when we get closer to that one. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.